I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. We're joined today by Margaret Tollev, the senior White House correspondent for Bloomberg, who also appears regularly on various news programs. Uh, Margaret, tell us first how you got to Bloomberg and a little about your background. Ah, uh, Bob, I was like an old school journeyman reporter. I had started out writing obituaries and uh, uh, covered politics in Florida and in California. I worked for the LA Times for the now defunct Tampa Tribune and ended up covering Arnold Schwarzenegger's recall uh, win in California, moved to D.C. for McClatchy newspapers to cover Congress. Well, I was like sort of an old rookie reporter to cover Barack Obama's presidential bid in 08, and he ended up winning, and I ended up at the White House. And I've been at Bloomberg since 2011. Um, I stuck with Obama coverage until... um, well, until the bitter end, <laughs> covered the other presidential campaign. And uh, when Hillary Clinton lost, I stayed on at the White House anyway. So here I am. Donald Trump is new to me. I am discovering him day by day. So you have been covering him since the campaign. I've been covering him really since November the 9th. I mean, I covered a couple of Donald Trump rallies, but I was sort of full time toggling between Hillary Clinton's campaign coverage or covering the final months of the White House. So I covered only a Trump event here and there and and read the coverage like everybody else. But, uh, you know, for many of us who covered Obama and are now covering President Trump, January the 20th was the beginning of our education. And for many of our friends who had covered the campaign all the way through, they're like, oh, that's Trump. Come on. Where have you been? You know, so if that's the beginning of your education with Trump, what have you learned? <laughs> He's almost nothing like President Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, what, I, what I've learned so far really is, is probably not that different than anything that you would observe, um, except for this. He really is not afraid in governance as well as in campaigning to upend orthodoxy to float ideas himself. You covered Washington much longer than uh, than I have, but in my limited experience, um, it's really common for a White House to float trial balloons through anonymous background senior advisors or even people one or two rings outside of that inner circle. Donald Trump just floats it himself on the record in public. That's how the trial balloons get floated. You know, I must say, uh, sometimes I wonder if he even knows when he starts an interview or or starts a sentence where it's going to go if he knows where it's really going to go does he do some of these news breaks these trial balloons you think they just happen on the spur of the moment sometimes yeah i do uh not always i think he's very savvy about how the media works and he understands what would be breaking news on any given day i think he understands how to redirect when he doesn't like what the narrative would be otherwise. Even if a narrative seems controversial or moves markets, uh, if it takes attention away from something else he didn't want to talk about, uh, that's okay also. But I think often his uh, his advisors didn't see his 
plan coming even if he did. <laughs> and they have to respond. Let me just ask you this. So you covered the other campaign. Why do you think Donald Trump won? Yeah, I do think it was a number of factors. I think it was in no particular order the following, that it's hard for someone to get elected to a third term. And after two terms of Obama, it was going to be difficult for a Democrat to follow. Everybody always knew that. I think Hillary Clinton was a flawed candidate, both in terms of message and in terms of just quirks about her personality and some of those baked in things about her and about the Clintons that where public opinion was already set. And uh, there were a lot of people who liked her and there were a lot of people who didn't. And there weren't that many people who had never made up their minds about how to feel about Hillary Clinton. And I think that Donald Trump took tremendous advantage of the hugely crowded Republican primary field. It was much easier to emerge the front runner when it was that much harder for 16 other people to catch up and use that momentum and the desire for change and Clinton's weaknesses and XYZ. I mean, it really was a combination of all of these things. And the only kind of analogy that I've ever experienced in my own political coverage that that this made me think of was in California covering the recall campaign, because even though it was a different kind of race, and even though uh, one involved an incumbent and and Hillary Clinton wasn't technically an incumbent, um, there were parallels between how the public viewed Gray Davis there and how the public viewed Clinton here. And there were parallels in terms of that energy crisis and uh, dot-com collapse there and the financial crisis and the aftermath here. And what we saw in Schwarzenegger's case, although he's a different personality than Trump, but they're both larger than life and very instinctive, was that when the public makes up its mind that it wants to make a radical statement, when that's just in the air and when enough like momentum crystallizes behind it, it almost doesn't matter what you tell them about that candidate. Like Schwarzenegger dealt with groping allegations. Donald Trump dealt with the Access Hollywood stuff. At a certain point, I saw a phenomenon in California where the public had decided – I know this might be crazy, but I don't care. I want to make a statement. I'm going for it. I believe that this person understands something that nobody else understands, and I believe that I have to do something radical to affect a change. And I think, to some extent, that's also part of what happened here. I, I must say to you, I think that's one of the most insightful analyses of this of this campaign that I've heard, uh, and I've listened to several. <laughs> but I, I think you, I think you really have hit on something. Let me move on to to now. Uh, when it comes to making news, I have to say you and your colleagues at Bloomberg may get the prize for the interview with Donald Trump. I mean, in 30 minutes, he told you he would be honored to meet with Kim Jong-un, the ruthless North Korean leader who held power by killing many of his father's senior advisors. He suggested we might need a gasoline tax to pay for road and bridge repairs. He said he's exploring whether to break up the big banks and, in your words, suggested a health care plan more generous than Obamacare for those with pre-existing conditions. All of that in one half-hour interview. I guess I would ask for all the journalism students out there who want to know, how did you get that done in a half hour? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, like almost by accident. So uh, my colleague Jennifer Jacobs and I, we both really uh, had wanted to lock in a 100 Days interview for Bloomberg. And I went to the press secretary and said, hey, is there any chance that you could fit us in? He was doing all these interviews. 
we actually were delayed several times because the schedule became so busy. We didn't get our interview before the first 100 days, but they agreed to secure us one afterwards. And I was concerned going in that it would be hard to make news. Instead, he wanted to make news, and perhaps in part to get past that analysis that the first 100 days hadn't accomplished very much, perhaps in part to get past the coverage hours old coverage that was critical of the agreement they'd cut with Democrats to uh, to have a spending plan so that the government didn't shut down. And, and the president really did not want to be viewed as not having done a lot or as having capitulated to Democrats. Uh, so he seemed very open to talking about his thinking going forward, even if it wasn't fully formed on all these issues. And I don't know how to say it. We asked and he answered. And I mean, probably the first... 20 minutes of the interview, we only covered a couple subjects, the the spending plan, um, taxes, some of the gas tax stuff. In that last five to seven minutes, we just covered the waterfront. I mean, it was like speed round, and I said this, and he answered, and we asked that, and he answered again. And he wanted to talk, and we definitely wanted to listen. So you you went in with a lot of questions. Well, we had rewritten our questions five times because the interview kept getting rescheduled. So uh, for better or for worse, uh, we had thought really th- fully through what questions we wanted to ask that we didn't know the answers to yet. Let's bring in Andrew Schwartz. Thanks, Bob. And Margaret, thank you for being here. Uh, you know, last week you, you were telling me you were actually disappointed that you didn't get the interview the week before. You, you you wanted the 100 days interview. I mean, timing's everything. But tell me about what it was like trying to schedule an interview with them and why you were disappointed. Everybody wanted one because, because it's a historic presidency and because uh, we all know that President Trump doesn't always stick to the script, says what's on his mind. On that basic level, uh, a reporter's dream because it's a subject who's not overly guarded and who's not, uh, maybe he is thinking 12 steps ahead to how it will play, but you can't tell that he is. You know, you get all the stuff that was honestly really hard to get out of President Obama, like what's his gut instinct? What's his emotion? Is he angry about something or happy about it? Most politicians, including the previous president, keep their cards pretty close to their chest to give themselves maneuvering room. And also out of all these other considerations, they don't want to move markets. They don't want to shake up these carefully laid diplomacy plans that they've been trying to set. President Trump doesn't operate that way. I'm, I'm not going to make the case that he's the most open and transparent president of all time. I don't think that's true. I think his uh, administration, he at his direction, is going to some lengths to make it more difficult to find out who's coming in and out of the White House, to find out you know statistics about policies that they don't necessarily support anymore. Certainly, we haven't seen his tax returns. I mean, so that's not the point that I'm making. But I will say, just in the sort of one-on-one interaction between journalists and the president, he's he's quite accessible, and it's and it's very inter- it's always interesting to talk to him because you never know what he'll say. Well, you know, he has this tremendous sense of pop culture in America, and I've heard people in pop culture say that watching the White House coverage is like the new reality TV. It's like the new Kardashians. Does it feel like you're part of an ongoing reality show uh, that the American people and the rest of the world are watching? I'm sorry to be like old and lame, but I don't really watch reality shows. So for me, um, that's not in, that's not an instinctive thing for me. I'll say this. He has a tremendous instinct, right? And this is goes back to my sort of sort of parallel Schwarzenegger analogy. When we were covering Arnold back in Sacramento, he 
he'd go to an event and his staff would try to put him somewhere on the stage and he'd say, no, 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 I need to be standing here and you need to be standing there. And he would restage it. And I thought of that in our interview with President Trump, because at one point our photographer came in later into the interview. He wasn't there from the get go. And when he came in and was able to begin taking pictures, President Trump all of a sudden realized for himself that there was a stack of magazines to his right at the Resolute desk. And he said, oh, you don't need this lying around here, this Longine ad in your in your frame. Let me get it out of the way. And himself moved the magazines to clear the desk so that the shot would look right. So he has a real instinct and an eye for that sort of thing. Obama was much more uh, kind of a, almost like a cult icon for a younger generation. And he was aware of more emerging trends, what was new in music. You know, Mrs. Obama was really into what was new in fashion. And they were they were culturally relevant to a, a much younger set of Americans. And it was kind of, for the most part, the same set that are like on all these social media that Trump is also really good at, better at even than Obama, Twitter, and uh, et cetera. You know, you go to a Trump event and he's playing like Elton John and the Rolling Stones. So it's not that he's with it in terms of he's not like wearing the newest sneakers or whatever. It's not so much the pop culture as it is just an instinct for how to affect emotions in people. He's how to get he's, attention. He's just much more on the right off the cuff. He wears his emotions on his sleeve and he and he talks in a way that people react to. I thought what was fascinating, uh, the interview that our, our man John Dickerson had at CBS, where at the end, yeah. he just turned around and walked off yeah, from done. Dickerson. And whatever his emotion, what he appeared to be, was like a three-year-old child pouting. He said, that's enough, okay, and turned around and walked over and sat down at his desk and started yeah. shuffling papers. And yet, Within a couple of hours, he was on. Uh, John Dickerson was on the plane with him. It's my understanding they had dinner together, and he went to the rally in Pennsylvania with him. I mean, it's uh, it. He has these little blow-ups, and then, you know, it's it's back to square one. It's such a great observation. I mean, the New York Times has faced so much animus from Trump at these public rallies and in, in his tweets. You know, uh, fake news or failing New York Times, whatever he likes to say. But I can't think of anyone who's gotten more, not just like interview opportunities, but like phone calls, like the president's on the line, than, uh, than <laughs> two of those reporters, um, then Maggie and, and Glenn, when it comes to... Yeah, Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush. That's right. And so um, Trump is different than Obama. Uh, President Obama would stay classy through the interview and then like freeze you out for a couple of years. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And Donald Donald Trump, um, President Trump handles it really differently. The John Dickerson uh, interaction was quite amazing when he just sort of waved his hand like, I'm done here. But it doesn't matter because any opportunity to get your message across is an opportunity to get your message across. Seems to be what, how President Trump views this. I am. Uh, let's just run through this interview that you got. Uh, <laughs> He said he'd be honored uh, to meet with Kim Jong-un. I don't see that happening. Do you? Well, and the White House doesn't seem to see it happening either. I mean, Sean Spicer almost immediately, within a couple hours of that interview, was trying to dial back what the president had said and saying, look, he said, if appropriate, it's not appropriate now. There's the, This is nowhere near the time to do this. A number of conditions would need to be met. But President Trump didn't make any of those points himself. He says we may need a gas tax. Yeah. Wasn't that I don't amazing? see that happening. Do you? So what he said was that uh, he had been talking to a, a good friend of his who's a trucker and that his feeling is if this is something that the transportation industry really wants or businesses really want because it would be good for the economy or jobs, then that's something that Republicans as well as Democrats should be listening to. This was 
<laughs> pretty controversial to a lot of lawmakers who were hearing it for the first time. But I actually do think, in theory, that could be something that he could pursue, particularly, particularly if he really were looking for a way to cobble together a wide-ranging bipartisan infrastructure agreement. Now, he did talk back during the campaign, and it went sort of, I think, unnoticed by most people. He did talk about breaking up the big banks, and what he means by that is breaking up banks that deal with keeping money for people. They operate over here, and those the investment banks, like Goldman Sachs, there's a complete separation. Uh, It never got much play, but he did actually talk about that. i still see very little chance of that happening. Yeah, he t- he talked about it, and it was also something that Bernie Sanders talked about, and one of those big differences between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton always saying, well, that really wouldn't, even if you'd brought back Glass-Steagall, which is the banking act that we're talking about, that it really wouldn't have fended off the 2008 crisis anyway. It doesn't address the problem. President Trump and Bernie Sanders have always kind of, in theory, maybe, sort of, had some of this same policy ground to cover, but they always went about it in two completely different ways. And so I think one question we don't know the answer to yet, as of right now, is what would really be the legislation that President Trump is proposing? And two would be, does he really mean it? Is that really what he's trying to do? Or is this more about rolling back some of the Dodd-Frank protections that the Democrats are really wedded to by saying, well, here, I'm doing something that Democrats want to do. So is this the actual strategy or is it kind of a strategic overture toward a different strategy. Now, on Obamacare, what's your latest intelligence on that? Are they going to bring that to a vote this week? Do they have the votes? They're going to try. But as of the taping, as of right now, we uh, do not believe that they have the votes. There's still a lot of attempted arm twisting going on. But Republicans uh, in the House still have this same essential cleave down the middle, which is that both Republicans who are in swing districts and Republicans who just really believe strongly in the actual legislative protections for pre-existing coverage are, are not confident uh, that, that that will be fully protected under this legislation. And they're uncomfortable with either uh, going on the record for something that's not going to end up passing anyway in final form, or they're just not comfortable doing it for ethical reasons. They don't believe it's right. There are others who say, look, this is sort of a state's rights issue or a, a, a free market issue. And you know, uh, we want to focus more on uh, bringing down the cost of uh, premiums. But for those who feel really well to this commitment. And, and Donald Trump made the commitment himself during the campaign and a lot of his supporters. That's something that they believe that he has promised them, that he, that he is going to protect their coverage for things like cancer and other pre-existing conditions. And to many of their minds, protecting means not just that they can get insurance, but that they can actually you know, afford the insurance. So what is your take? I mean, uh, he told you, he told John Dickerson, uh, uh, on Saturday that, yes, uh, his health care proposal does include coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. Others say, no way, that it's simply not, that's simply not true. It does. It does and it doesn't. It also has uh, loopholes, namely this uh, ability for the states to opt out. And that that's kind of the, the asterisk at the end of that promise, and it's potentially a really big asterisk. So the other thing that the president told us during that interview, sort of two things. One was uh, that the legislation is probably going to be in different form before it ever reaches his desk. So what he seems to be saying is it doesn't really this doesn't really matter. This is just the vehicle to get it through the House. Part two of what he's saying is that this will be better than Obamacare, but in the same breath, he says, and the reason why is because Obamacare is 
essentially already gone. It's dead. So is he saying that the protections will be better because something's better than nothing? Or is he saying he's committed to doing more than Obama ever did under the sort of hope and dream portion of the Affordable Care Act? Until, well, until people really study the actual language of the House bill, they're still formulating those decisions. And that has to be what they base their vote on, not the promise of some Senate compromise that doesn't exist yet. Margaret, Bob covered the White House in one era. I covered it in another era during the George W. Bush era. You've covered it in the Obama now and now Trump era. I think people really want to know inside this White House, like, what is it like to cover this White House? Like, let's get under the hood a little bit. What's it like day to day in the trenches for a White House correspondent covering this administration? What are you doing there? The the main thing that's been different in the opening months is, well, I guess it's twofold. One is the whole kind of war on the press element, which is a theme, which has sort of forced reporters in a much more public setting to try to figure out, do they address this stuff publicly or do they just kind of put their heads down and keep reporting, right? And that's different because all administrations on some level are hostile to the press and on some level at least express the potential for that hostility to try to use the press. Yeah, well, to try to keep people polite and, you know, gentle. Um, uh, They might say great things, as Obama often did, about how committed he was to a free press publicly, but then behind the scenes uh, really control information tightly or make it hard to get information. But this is different. It's just very public and you have to contend with it in rallies and you always find yourself being asked to defend yourself when you're not really interested in doing that. So that's been like a weird new degree of difficulty. But put that off to the side. Another element that's that's just um, there's a lot of faces who didn't have prior experience in government or in White Houses. Sure. And that comes at the same time as as the teams haven't been fully fleshed out yet. So whether it's like at the NSC level, whether it's um, at the uh, agency level, deputy secretaries, undersecretaries, and some of the departments are more understaffed than others. How this traditionally works is there's like the people right on top, and then there's like everybody else who is more accessible, who you have the ability to deal with on sort of granular questions. When the granular people are not around, it's really hard to get information. And so even if you have uh, press folks who are uh, helpful or would like to be helpful, they're just overwhelmed because they don't have the structural support systems um, that they need. Uh, Because the Trump campaign uh, itself hadn't necessarily expected that they would be where they are now. The transition was slow, and so all the stuff that comes with that was slow. Everything from the press operation to the travel office to the staffing that we're talking about. And so everyone's been kind of learning together, right? The press has been learning how the administration works. The administration has been learning how governance in a White House works. I guess the other thing about the Trump administration, the Trump White House, that I would observe is that there are a lot more channels of power that are potentially competing than were obvious during the Obama administration. We all know what those channels are. The emergence kind of in in that second wave, not the opening days. The opening days were like, who's in charge? Is it Bannon or is it Reince? You know, we all know that story. But the emergence of uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner as perhaps the the real or the most important power center has been really interesting uh, to observe in part because um, maybe with the exception of like sort of Nancy Reagan was important to President Reagan and Hillary Clinton uh, certainly was a factor in the Clinton White House. But you've got now two staffers, White House staff, who are uh, the president's um, family, 
not just family, but his beloved daughter who to whom he's completely devoted and her uh, young up-and-coming husband who the president often describes as brilliant and has given this enormous portfolio to. And, uh, you know, they have walk-in privileges in the Oval Office anytime they want. They're affiliated with each other, which makes them inherently stronger than any other individual high-ranking official vying for power. Are they the only ones, Jared and Ivanka, who can tell him no? Or dad slash boss, let's do this. We should think about this differently. I'm not sure if that's right. I think they, if they say no, if she says no, he hears it in a different way than if someone else does. I think uh, I think Bannon's voice has been very important to him, uh, both in the campaign and in the opening. Uh, weeks of the administration. I think Gary Cohn uh, has been a figure he really respects on economic issues. And I think H.R. McMaster, that transition from from General from Lieutenant General Flynn to H.R. McMaster, he seems to be listening to McMaster uh, a lot in terms of, well, maybe not his public statements about diplomacy, but in terms of some of his uh, decisions and approaches. And are so you able to talk to some of these people? The, the reporters have, I would say, comparable access as in previous White Houses, to uh, be able to reach out to folks. And I think the reporters who covered the campaign got to know some of these folks uh, during the campaign. And for the rest of us, it's it's been um, an effort to really catch up because there are, it's not only that there are an influential set of people around the president, but that it's a very large influential set. They're, they're con- sort of concentric circles, but there's uh, a half a dozen, six to eight really important, maybe 10 really important, maybe 12 really important <laughs> people who he has a lot of access to at all times. Uh, maybe 15, actually maybe 20. You see where I'm going with yeah. this? Mm-hmm. And then a lot of business people uh, who he talks to on a regular basis who were outside of the White House. So Beginning to understand and get to know Trump's friendships, Trump's world, Trump's advisors, not just the official advisors, but the unofficial advisors, is tremendously important because he really is talking to people all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to ask you, obviously, to reveal your sources, but do you can you talk directly with some of those people and you can call them and they call you back? And uh, how does that work? Or do you have to arrange it? Do you have to go through the press office to talk to them? I think it depends on who you want to talk to. I think in that sense, it is like fairly traditional, as it would be with any administration, right? I mean, there's people who you know and people who you don't know. Uh, If it's someone you don't know, (laughs) you have to figure out how to get to know them. Uh, but, But knowing each of those people a little bit is knowing a little piece of President Trump. If you had to pick out one person that you said knows what the president is thinking... You know, I covered the Carter White House, and the great thing about Jody Powell as a press secretary was when he told you something, you knew he got it directly from Carter. He was the, he had the most access of any uh, press secretary that, that I've known about. Now, if you went back to Johnson, I wasn't there when he was there. George Christian, who was his press secretary, he knew what Johnson was thinking, and, and, and he reflected that. Who would you say reflects this president's thinking, uh, Ivanka? I do think that Ivanka and Jared have a very good handle, about as good a handle as anyone on what President Trump is thinking at any given time. I also think he does change his thinking on issues. And I also think that some presidents like to keep really tight reins on things. And like, it's not to say that they don't want opposing thoughts, that maybe they do, but they, they like to be able to reach consensus. I think President Trump may operate from a slightly different position where he um, he likes the competition. 
sometimes one person knows one piece of what he's thinking and another person knows another piece of what he's thinking. The challenge in reporting is to bring it all together to try to get a full picture. Or you can just ask him and then and then yeah. you know what he's thinking. <laughs> he knows what he's thinking. Do, do reporters ever get him on the telephone? Yep. They do. Uh, well, the other way around. He sometimes gets reporters on the telephone. It tends to be how it works more. And you might be um, a reporter might get a, a call or hear that the president would like to see them or something like that. But he is engaging. He does engage directly. Uh, much more than President Obama did, as far as I know, uh, particularly at this early stage of the administration. I, I would say uh, much more than any president yeah. that I've known about, except for Johnson. Interesting. Going back to Lyndon Johnson, he used to deal with the reporters directly. And if, if they wrote a story he didn't like, he personally was the one who delivered the message. That Do you he didn't see similarities like beyond that? Uh, not really. I, I don't, because... Johnson had this great appreciation and knowledge of the process of government. Nobody understood it better than he did. Absolutely. I mean, he knew which button to push on what issue, and he knew what everybody involved in that knew about it. <clears throat> I think Trump is largely unfamiliar with a lot of that, but I find him as aggressive in pushing what he wants uh, as Johnson was. We uh, During our interview, two things struck me, and I think struck my reporting partner also, when we talked to him about the deal he cut with Democrats on the spending plan. And he, he said, well, I just, I'm paraphrasing, but this is close to what he said, well, what choice did I have? We couldn't shut the government down, and Democrats are obstructionist. Like, this was a big revelation, right? When President Obama was the president, um, he was very weak for, you know, getting rolled by various and sundry people. Uh, so that seemed like a revelation to him. And the other um, was when you watch the evolution of the relationship with Xi Jinping and uh, the idea that President Trump really thought that President Obama was weak on China and letting China push him around. But you see now that he is confronting the complexities of dealing with the North Korean threat, He's all, he now sees tremendous value in uh, saying kind things publicly about uh, President Xi and kind of putting some of his concerns on, on trade, et cetera, off to the side in order to deal with the, the bigger shared challenge. There's one thing we didn't talk about yet. So everybody's been talking about this week because of the Kim Jong-un. Today, he talked to Putin on the phone. He had a brief conversation with Putin on the phone. He spoke with Duterte last week and invited him. And Duterte apparently is tied up and maybe can't come to the White House. What's the president's deal with these authoritarian figures? Is this strategic? Is this does he have an appreciation for how they how they run their governments? I think it's a great question, especially when it's coupled with the way he's treated some of our closest allies, right? Everything from his messaging and his language on South Korea uh, to the obvious, the Canada, Mexico, the Australia stuff. Uh, what was the deal with Angela Merkel? You know, uh, and so when you couple that with uh, what seems like friendlier than you need to be behavior toward uh, some of these you know, strongmen or uh, controversial leaders, you might see a pattern that's deliberate. It, it might be about him thinking, this is how these guys expect to be treated and want to be treated. And if that, I'll, I'll do that to some extent, if it allows me to reset the relationship. He spoke uh, in terms of getting the uh, Egyptian-American woman who had been detained there, uh, imprisoned in, in, in Egypt, back. And that sort of came along with that CC visit, right? When when I asked him about um, Kim Jong-un, he himself raised this issue of, well, see, I'm meeting with the, uh, the Palestinian leader, uh, Mr. Abbas, this week, as if the two leaders had anything to do with each other. But I think he sees them on a continuum of him engaging in, in personal outreach 
to people who represent governments or um, peoples who uh, are, are in conflict either with the U.S. or with an ally, that he believes that he personally uh, can uh, use his personal negotiating skills to affect some sort of a reset. And that is what he seems to be dabbling with. And he's obviously uh, placed the U.S. national security imperatives above human rights concerns in those countries. Certainly publicly, that's true. Uh, look, the U.S., as we all know, from one president to the next, we often look the other way when that's in the U.S. interest, deemed to be in the U.S. interest. What's different about this is how public it is and, and how effusive some of the language is, not just the willingness to deal with them, uh, but to be welcoming to them. Come here or I'd be honored to do this. I mean, That's different. It really is different. Let me just wrap this up with a monumental question that the world waits to hear your answer on. What do you think about the White House Correspondents' Dinner and how it was handled this year? <laughs> That's the monumental question? That's huge. <laughs> uh, I've been on the board for five years. I'm going into my sixth year. I'm the vice president of this association now. I love this work. It's hugely important. And uh, covering the Trump presidency posed a real challenge uh, to our collect our collective press corps in terms of uh, whether he would seek to upend what all Americans expect to be, you know, access these daily briefings, traveling the motorcades, being on Air Force One, being able to talk to him. Uh, we have been able to work with the Trump administration to preserve all of that. But on the dinner itself, the president felt for various reasons of calculation that he just simply could not be in that room. And his uh, his late in the game decision to upend that tradition created a conundrum about uh, how to move forward. Um, and the course that the association chose was to embrace what the dinner has always supposed to have been about and what it was for many years much more clearly about before uh, it became so popular with uh, celebrity guests of the various news organizations, and that was to celebrate the First Amendment, the work of the free press, uh, the work of the correspondents who cover the White House. We sort of went back to basics, and I think it worked really well. President Trump has said that he's interested in joining our dinner next year, we will still be supporting the First Amendment, well, and that, if he wants to, I hope he does. I hope he will join us. That prompts my second question. Are you going to invite him? Of course. And because I, well, here's the reason I raise that question. If I invite somebody to my home uh, to come to a party and they say, no, I'm not coming because you're a criminal, you're an enemy of America, uh, you're dishonest, and you're a crook, uh, you're fake, uh, I'm not going to invite him to my home again. So I wonder— uh, you know, it's called the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It's not called the President's Dinner. Um, is it obligatory to invite the president? It's not called the President's Dinner because it's not the President's exactly. Dinner. It is a dinner to honor the First Amendment and the role a free press plays in a democracy. And the White House, uh, like all White Houses, knows that. And they know that that's kind of the underlying circumstance under which they've, they're being invited. This is bigger than the press corps, and it's bigger than the president. It, it's about tradition, it's about free speech, and it's about uh, people being able to put uh, their sort of day-to-day -day grievances aside for something that's loftier and more important. The White House press corps is sort of a unique institution among even all democracies. Uh, no other president uh, arrives in a foreign country with that sort of an entourage. No other president in the world, even in other Western democracies, takes uh, that much sort of public daily uh, scrutiny and criticism and uh, emerges 
potentially with the ability to appear stronger. And that's what's in it for any president but, to go and say, this is more important than I can take a couple of hits. You know. But if my, my thought about this is if he's not comfortable coming, he should go to his own parties and the White House correspondents should meet and give their uh, raise money for scholars and, and future journalists. And maybe it'd be better off if everybody just went to their own parties. Uh, my instinct is that uh, any American president should always be invited, and it should be his choice whether or not to attend. Our dinner goes on. We celebrate our cause. Uh, we raise money for our scholarships, our awards, our education programs. Uh, but uh, guests from all across the political spectrum are welcome, and the president's always welcome. You know, it's interesting that you said um, the dinner went back to basics. In some ways, I think maybe the White House press corps has gone back to basics. Do you think that? I certainly think that we have had to, on a few different fronts, investigative journalism has become just as important as it always was, but there's a real demand for it now where there wasn't for many years. And the election itself was so major a pivot point, so major a turning point, so much news uh, to emerge from it that there's just no shortage of actual news stories to cover. We've got our hands full, but uh, but it's uh, but it's a tremendous privilege to get to cover the White House, and even in really challenging times, a, a fun and interesting and a great honor. Margaret Talov, uh, who's doing a great job at the White House, and we thank you very much for what you're doing over there, Margaret. For Andrew Schwartz, this is Bob Schieffer. Thanks for listening. Is it a physical attraction? Is it sexual satisfaction? Is it long life together? Oh, going through all kinds of weather. Is it holding each other's hands? Making all kinds of plans? Never, never saying goodbye. Never, never making each other cry. Love is all the above. That's what love is. Love is everything underneath the sun. That's what love is. Ah, all of the above. Is it a walk in the park? <laughs> or is it kissing in the dark? Is it strolling in the rain? Is it joy or is it pain? If love really the answer, then what could be the question? I look in the sky and I pray Love is all the above That's what love is Love is everything Underneath the sun That's what love is Ooh, All of the above
That's what love 